So there are two topics that when we talk about them in church, uh, we shift uneasily in our seats. The first is money. When you hear I'm going to talk about money, take your wallet out of your front pocket, you put it in your back so you can sit on it, lest you be tempted to do something with it. The second is the topic of sex. Now, I'll give you a hint. This weekend, I'm not talking about money. So shift in your seat if you need to. Get uncomfortable for a moment because who knows what I'm about to say. Nothing seems more divisive right now in our world than sexuality. And yes, it is complicated. There's a lot of misunderstandings. I heard this week about a five-year-old who was told that his aunt was going to have a baby. And he looked at his mom and he said, yep, that's what happens when you share your toothbrush. I'm never sharing my toothbrush. (laughs) There's discomfort. Like, why is this so hard to talk about? Why do parents recoil in terror as they think about the day that they have to give the talk? And so, to make it easier, uh, we create stories about storks and how storks deliver children to well-meaning parents. One day, years ago, my kids were younger, my daughter caught me flirting with my wife, which I think it's good you can still flirt with your wife after 25 years. And she looked and she said, oh, gross. And I said, how do you think you were born? And she took her hand, she covered her ears and she said, I came from a stork. I came from a stork. I came from a stork. (laughs) True story. There's lots of disagreement, complexity, pain, everyone has a story, there's emotion involved, everyone has an opinion. We've also experienced a seismic cultural shift that are often at conflict with the traditional Christian ethic, causing some to say that Christianity and their views are prude, old-fashioned, and judgmental. So my desire today is not to be any of those things. I don't intend to be judgmental or shaming or belittling at all. My heart is simply to serve you as a pastor, to be faithful to what I believe the Bible teaches, my own conscience, because the Bible isn't silent on this topic. I also want to extend to every one of us, regardless of where we find ourselves, an invitation to think deeply for just a moment about who God is, what it means to be a human created in his image, and how that affects our sexuality. Now, I'm sure there are some that will not agree with everything that I say, which is fine, but I hope that you'll weigh my words against scripture, not culture. And honestly, though, I'm a pastor. Uh, My past is not as pure as the driven snow. My adolescent years were, well, they were complicated. So I bring empathy. That brings us to our text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 6, and 7. I'm not going to read them all, but this is where we find ourselves as we make our way this summer to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he was living in a city called Ephesus, and he's writing to a church in a Roman colony called Corinth. 
It's a church that's very dear to his heart because he started this church. And as we move through chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Apostle Paul is addressing some very specific issues and problems happening in this church in this time period and also addressing questions that are being asked of him, all of which revolve around sexuality. This uh, section of the text begins, however, with a warning. Uh, and the warning essentially is Christians stay in your lane. First Corinthians chapter five, beginning in verse nine. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now, to bring some, some context to what is being written here, we have to go back to verses 1, 2, and 3. Because in verses 1, 2, and 3, the Apostle Paul is addressing a very specific situation happening in this church. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? So most believe that in this situation, what is being addressed is that a man is sleeping with his stepmother, which is kind of weird, right? I mean, even in our day, our day of openness, like that's really just kind of weird because it's not your mom, but it kind of is your mom. And that's just outside of the norm. And this is happening amongst committed church members, right? So it's not just this person out in the community, a church member, a dedicated church member is doing this. So this portion of the letter is addressing sexual ethics within the church community and not the broader context of the city of Corinth. And so this section is followed by a Christian stay in your lane comment. Back to verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? For God will judge those outside. In other words, what's happening out in the world is really not your job to judge. I was on Highway 45 not too long ago in... There was a person in front of me, and they kept swerving in and out of their lane, which is super annoying. And I've kind of come to learn that there's a a difference between the swerving of a person who's intoxicated and the swerving of a person who's texting on their phone, right? There's like different movements, at least I think, to make myself feel smart. I I tell myself that. So this person swerving, I'm like, they're on their phone. And it's driving me crazy because that is my biggest pet peeve. And so they're swerving back and forth, back and forth. And, and I got to get around them because they're going to do something crazy. And so I pull up next to them to get by them. And sure enough, they're there texting on their phone. And what I wanted, well, I'm not going to tell you what I wanted to do, but I wanted to do something very unchristian. And it was annoying and it was dangerous. And I wanted to yell, stay in your lane. Get off your phone. Historically, the Christian church has had a hard time staying in its lane. And as a result, we've not 
represented the God of the Bible very well. It is not our business to judge those outside the faith community. The Apostle Paul didn't do it. Jesus didn't do it. When I read the Gospels, Jesus had some pretty hard words for those within faith. But outside, it was a very different story. Because truth is, we have enough issues within our own faith community that we don't have time to worry about those outside. When we talk about sexuality, however, we cannot begin with behavior. We have to start with belief. Because there are so many that do not see things the way that I do. If I believe that life is just a large cosmic accident, if I believe there is no life after death, there is no God, there is no source of moral authority or purpose, then of course I'm going to see things differently. I'm going to live my life differently. I'm going to do whatever I want. Whatever seems pleasurable, whatever is good, I'm just going to do it because life is short, so make the most of it. And so it's not my job to force my ethic on people who do not see the world the way that I do. And yet Christians have been doing it for hundreds of years and it hurts the kingdom of God. It's not our purpose. Now what our purpose is, is to represent Jesus well, inside and outside the church. To extend his love to the world, to extend good news to a world that desperately needs good news, to be salt and light, to be good citizens, to live with integrity and, and honor. And it is the role of God's Holy Spirit to convict and transform the heart not mine. And when a heart is convicted and transformed, then we as the faith community surround with love and discipleship. But see, within the Christian worldview, there's a whole lot of good news about sex and the body. See, the Bible teaches the sacredness of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So you're sacred because you reflect your creator. When you look deeply into the eyes of the person sitting next to you, what you're looking at is a reflection of God Almighty. If we go all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 1, God is speaking and he says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. Like I 
this portion is biblical evidence for barbecue and smoked meats. I mean, just... That was funnier than your laughing. Come on. (laughs) Verse 27. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. You're blessed. And he said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In your design, in my design, we reflect God. If you want to sound smart and say it in Latin, you are the imago Dei, the image of God. And that sacred design is the very beginning of your identity before anything else. And as a result, that affects the way I see the world. It defines my life and it makes me crave relationship because God himself is relational in nature. Let us make mankind in our image. God is in perfect relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because I reflect him, I'm designed to want connectedness and intimacy. When I was in my 20s, one of my greatest fears is that I would live this life completely and utterly alone. I mean, why is that? It's because I was designed for relationship. Like, even as an introvert, I still like to be around people at least every once in a while. I also reflect God's goodness because the, the evaluative word that God originally uses for you, for your body, for your sexuality is the word good because he's good. Now, yes, of course, we can get into a discussion of Adam and Eve in the fall, but that's a sermon for another day. You and I were a reflection of his goodness. In Genesis, God announces the evaluated worth of what he's created. He looks around and he says two words, it is very good. And you're sacred because you reflect his goodness. You're also sacred because you're his temple. Verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. A a temple is simply a a dwelling place of of God. There's, There's this innate sense of respect that we have for religious places. Like we we have this kind of ideal that religious places should be set apart, that maybe our behavior and our approach should be different. Like years ago, I was at the Sistine Chapel in Italy and, and there was a big sign that said, please be silent. This is a holy place. And as we stood in the Sistine Chapel, every once in a while, the, the volume of the tourists would go up and one of the Swiss guard would step up and clap his hands and say, Silencio, this is a holy place kind of a sense of the sacred. If I walked out here today to give this message and I was wearing flip-flops, shorts, a Led Zeppelin t-shirt and a ball cap, you'd probably struggle with that. Because there's this, this sense of what it means to be in a sacred place doing sacred things. And because I sacred because I belong to him, because I'm a temple. I honor him with my whole being, including my body. I also have this innate sense of wanting to challenge things. It's my life. I can do whatever I want. Like all of us have this sense of needing to challenge authority. 
And, and we don't learn it. We just know it, right? No, no one has to teach a two-year-old how to throw a temper tantrum. They just know how to do it all on their own. You tell a two-year-old no, they throw themselves on the ground. They're flailing around. They're throwing, screaming. Like, they didn't, I hope they didn't learn that from their parents, but, but they just, it's just kind of a sense that they know how to do that. I should be able to do whatever I want. And because of that, sometimes we find out the hard way. I grew up in, in western New York, and it, it gets so cold there. And I heard, when I was a kid in elementary school, I heard that if you were to stick your tongue on a metal object, it would freeze instantly. This, this was before a Christmas story came out. This, right? And I'm like, is that really true? So one day as I was waiting for the bus, I stuck my tongue on the pole of a stop sign. And guess what? It works. And when you remove it, a thin layer of skin comes off and hurts for days. And I had to learn the hard way. Sometimes the only way to learn is the hard way. And so we make comments like, what's the big deal? It's just sex. It's everywhere. Everyone's doing it. It's no big deal. My kid, kid with the times, man, it's just, it's not a big deal. If that's true, then why do people get so upset when they found out their spouse has an affair? Well, it's because it's not just sex, that's why. And why is it that there's a very different response between someone who is mugged and someone who's raped? It's because it's not just sex. Why is it that some of the greatest regrets that humans have are sexual in nature because it's not just sex. Why do so many people feel such shame after looking at pornography? It's because it's not just sex. Because when that's the attitude, we actually devalue life. Life that is made in God's image and we turn sexuality into a commodity. And so the Apostle Paul in this portion of the letter is objecting to making people commodities. He's objecting to the idea of sex as entertainment, which is sobering in light of the fact that the global sex trade brings over $180 billion in revenue each year. Now this whole ideal would have been strange to the people in Corinth that the Apostle Paul was addressing because in that city it was believed that sexual desire should be satisfied the same way I eat a sandwich because I'm hungry. It's kind of moral indifference. In Corinth, in some cases, religion and sexuality were blended together and people would go to temples to have sex with prostitutes as a way of worship. Monogamy was a foreign concept. Corinth was a sexually charged place, kind of like in ancient Las Vegas. And the phrase, a Corinthian woman, was a nickname for a promiscuous person with a huge sexual appetite. And what Paul is saying to this group of people is outlandish. Because he goes on to say what sexuality really is, is the mingling of souls. Chapter 6, verse 16, for it is said, the two shall become one flesh. And it's good, right? We need to stop making it dirty and uncomfortable. 
Like in my home, we, we've never avoided the topic, right? Because it's not a bad thing. It's not dirty. It's not ugly. It's not gross. Yet at the same time, anything good used improperly can cause damage. I saw, this is a true story. I saw a warning label on a chainsaw. And the warning label said, do not stop chain with hand. <laughs> Which means someone tried to stop it with their hand, thus necessitating the label on the chainsaw. See, my sexuality is good and it is a divine design. And so it's within this context, within the context of the creation story of a man and a woman in a committed bond, that's where the Apostle Paul is going. See, our sexuality involves the union of two sacred bodies. Sexuality has this divine design and therefore it's not just physical, it's also spiritual. Now, the ancients live with this sense and ideal called dualism in which the, the, the kind of the body and the normal ways of life and our spirituality were separate. Like there's our, our church life and then there's kind of our real life and sometimes they match and sometimes they don't. And when I live that way, in disconnection, our sexuality can become distorted. See, if I'm disconnected from responsibility that my view of life becomes distorted, forgetting that, you know, if you didn't know this, when you have sex, there's the potential of creating a life. We can be disconnected from emotional relationship, just hook up with whoever's convenient. We can even become completely disconnected from people, and instead of bonding with a spouse, we bond with a screen. Our sexuality is a supernatural fusion of body and soul. See, no one knows this better than the Jews. If you were to go to a Jewish wedding, particularly in antiquity, Jews are married under a covering called a chuppah. A chuppah has its roots in Exodus. It's a reminder that we are under God's covering. After the wedding ceremony, however, the couple is still not married. After the wedding ceremony, a procession uh, leads the bride and groom. When I say a procession, everyone in attendance leads the bride and groom to a place called the bride chamber. And in the bride chamber, they would consecrate the marriage by having sex. Now here's the kicker. Well, everyone waited outside. And I mean everybody. And then when they were done, they would open the door and the celebration would begin because they weren't technically married to the sexual act. So if you're planning your wedding, you might say, hey, should we go Jewish on this one? I mean, what, how's this going to work? Because <laughs> if we go back to Genesis, oneness did not happen because two people stood before a preacher or a judge and signed a piece of paper. The oneness happened within the sexual act. So it's God's good intent. It is God's good intent that a man and a woman come together in this bond, this lifelong union. And it's good. But let's also remember the Apostle Paul's warning to Christians, stay in your lane. What business is it of yours to judge outside the church? It's not your business. But also be remember, you're sacred. 
So don't cheapen who you are because our sexuality is a mingling of souls. So this week, my challenge to all of us is that we would bring sacred back. I want to encourage you maybe to flip open your Bible this week and read 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, particularly verses 19 through 20 as a reminder of of who you are, who God designed you to be, how God designed us to function as reflections of his image. Gracious God, I, uh, I realize that this, for many, is an emotionally charged, an emotionally charged conversation. And so I ask for nothing but grace and empathy and understanding. Sometimes my, my conscience, what I believe your word teaches, will not allow me to just simply embrace the culture and standards around me. So help us to have a high view of who who humans are. Help us to have a high view of our body. Help us to have a high view of the divine gift of our sexuality. But may we honor you.